you would remain standing for the reading of God's word this morning that comes out of Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up from to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in persons to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, I want to do something uh, a little unusual this morning. I want to go ahead and pray for God's uh, blessing of his word this morning as actually like a part of what we're doing. And the reason why is because, honestly, I'm just going to be selfish here. Uh, just with the stuff with uh, Sterling and the Selmans, I, I was up late last night, uh, was woken up, I think, just by the Lord in the middle of the night and uh, given to prayer, and then woke up this morning uh, with uh, a call at five. And so, um, if you would, just bow with me. And if you would, just pray for God's worth to shine forth this morning. God and Father, you are Lord over all creation and you speak to us. Uh, You speak to us by your word and that is amazing. No matter uh, what season we are in, no matter what we are encountering, you have a word for us. You speak to us no matter what. There is uh, no life circumstances that could lead us far enough away to where we can't hear your word. There's uh, no time of desperation where we uh, don't desperately need your word as a healing balm. Lord, there is no time ever where we can live without your word. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, You give it to us, uh, Lord, as the breath uh, and bread of life. And so we come really trembling in front of your word this morning, asking you to change us, change our hearts, uh, and prime us for eternity. Lord, we pray these things in the power of the Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, when I was in eighth grade, uh, I went to uh, NASA space camp. And that sounds like the beginning of a joke, I think, Uh, like a really good one. But it's not a joke, it's just a statement of fact. I went to, oddly, Ontario, Canada to go to NASA space camp. And um, I think that that was probably, I was trying to think of there was any other time that I would have gone to an overnight camp other than that one. Uh, That's the first time that I had ever been away, and I was actually outside of the country. And um, I was obviously in eighth grade, so I was 
around that 14-year-old mark, and uh, I had uh, really kind of uh, gotten the chance to go with a few people from my school, and I ended up bunking up with a guy named Sean. He was a friend. We weren't very close in terms of uh, friendship, but we were close enough to actually bunk together. We were the only people in uh, the room that they had us bunking up in, and we came from very different homes. Uh, I had grown up in like a, a, a very uh, simple Southern Baptist kind of family. That's uh, where I had come up in. I had a, a sister. He was an only child. He came up uh, in a non-believing family. And we were there together uh, kind of experiencing, I think, life away from home for the first time uh, together. And uh, as a Southern Baptist boy, uh, I had two things that I had kind of come out of church. I had been recently baptized, and so uh, this probably about two years prior to this, I had been baptized, and I uh, knew two things very well. I knew that I was supposed to focus on my sin, and I knew that I was supposed to uh, share the gospel. Those were the only two things in my kind of simplistic understanding of the faith that I was very convinced of. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about my sin and about how I, uh, you know, apart from Jesus, was really uh, lost. And uh, maybe even at this time, had gotten just enough independence to make some, what seemed like at the time, some pretty significant mistakes. And I wasn't totally sure that I was saved. I wasn't totally sure that, like, I wasn't set on a trajectory to, like, wander away from the faith. So I had lots and lots of questions. But I also had a very firm belief that I needed to share the faith that I wasn't sure that I really grasped with other people. So Sean was caught in between those two poles. This poor guy was locked in a room with me at night and, uh, and uh, the kind of melodramatic gospel that he got, because I was very sure that I was going to share my faith with him, was, hey, you know what? Uh, I might not be saved. I might be too far away from God for him to save me, but you should really give it a try. That was kind of the like melodramatic Southern Baptist gospel that this poor guy got was, I, I know that I'm a sinner. I'm focusing on it. I may be too far away from God, but you should really give him a try. That's, by the way, if this is your first time ever being introduced to church, uh, that's not the real gospel. That is a very simplistic understanding of the gospel. But that's what Sean got. And, and here's uh, the, the truth. Um, I'm not so sure that as we get older that we get too much farther away from like that feeling and that tug uh, of like focusing on our past and feeling very far, feeling maybe too far away from God for him to redeem, but then as Christians also believing that we need to share that faith with other people. So we kind of have a problem as Christians. We don't share our faith a lot of times because we feel in one way or another that we're captive to our past or too far away to be able to really truly share that faith. And what I think that Paul has for us in the first chapter of Galatians, right here in this set of verses, is a really wonderful truth. And that is that Christians are freed from our past. We're freed from our past in order to preach truth in the presence. Christians are freed from our past so that we can preach the truth of the gospel in the presence. And we're going to see this in the life of Paul because uh, this set of verses, if we can be really honest, is uh, Paul being pretty defensive. He's pretty defensive. We're also going to see that he's just like totally out there with his public humiliation. He's willing to kind of step back through his story of public humiliation that Jesus actually put him through. Kind of funny. 
And then finally, we're going to see that he endured a lot of persecution as a preacher. So how are we going to relate that this morning to this primary message that Christians are freed from our past in order to preach the truth in the presence? We've got to learn three things. We've got to learn first about spiritual self-defense, spiritual self-defense. The second thing is humility through humiliation. And then the third thing is the persecuted preacher. That's kind of the roadmap for this morning of how we're going to end up really clinging to this truth of Christian freedom. But we've got to uh, know where we're kind of coming from. If this is your first time in, if this is the first time that you've ever encountered the book of Galatians, you need to know that Paul was the one who wrote the book of Galatians. And he wrote it to a small group of Galatian churches. And he starts off right in verse 1 saying that his name is Paul and that he is an apostle, not from man, but from God. And he has a gospel from God, not from man. That's the first thing that you've got to kind of get in order to understand what's happening in Galatians. The Galatians had received this true gospel from Paul, but then immediately after Paul had left, some troublers, some false teachers came in and began distorting the one true gospel so that other people would desert the gospel. They distorted for desertion. And Paul says that he is shocked at how quickly they were willing to leave the one true gospel. That's what we've covered so far in the last couple of weeks. So first, what do we need to kind of understand here? There's a reason why he is going on the attack, why Paul is kind of going on the attack, why he's being defensive. And the reason why is because these false teachers had come in with a personal attack. Okay, now, here, here's the truth. Last week, uh, you, you may notice that we actually are recovering this morning verses 11 and 12, and there's a really specific reason for that. I left over some things for us to actually get at this morning. I have something left for today. What you need to know and understand is, is that there is a defensive stance that Paul takes right in verse 1, and he says that he is an apostle, not from man or through man. He's, there's something that he's going to attack here that has to do with him being from man. Is he from man or is he not from man? Is the message that he has from man or not from man? In verses 11 and 12 actually tell us a little bit more. It's not man's gospel that he has. Look at verse 12 with me. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation. So here's a question that I've got for us this morning. Why is Paul so fixated on this idea of being from man or not from man? Why is he so fixated on it? He was being accused of making up a gospel of grace for the Gentiles, and the people, the false teachers that were coming in, were saying that Paul's gospel was from man. That's why he's spending so much time differentiating between the messages that he has here, is because these false teachers likely came in to this Galatian set of churches, and they said, do not pay attention to Paul. He doesn't know what he's talking about. His gospel so-called gospel, his so-called apostleship is from man. It's not from heaven. We know better. We grew up as Jews. We know and understand how the real gospel kind of connects in with the law. That's what these false teachers were likely telling the Galatians. That's why Paul is fixated on it. He's actually received a uh, pretty heavy accusation here. Hey, the thing that you've devoted your life to is all about you. That's what they're saying. 
So Paul is getting really defensive. And I wonder if you've ever known anybody who gets like super defensive, like right off the bat. Like they uh, have somebody that says something to them and they immediately just kind of bow up and they immediately say something in defense of themselves. All of us have been made really uncomfortable by a person like that, haven't we? We all know. Maybe you're like, I don't know anybody like that. Maybe it's you. I don't know. So here's what I want for us to understand is that we can understand that there are people out there that get very defensive pretty immediately. And normally we associate defensiveness with personality flaws like pride. When we see a defensiveness, it's like, man, there's something in that guy or gal that is pretty prideful, pretty narcissistic. Here's the truth. When I see myself being defensive, here's what I have to remind myself of. It's not something where I'm way up here and I need to defend myself. Honestly, I get most defensive in the places of my weakness. And when I see other people get really defensive, I don't think, man, these people are like really strong people. I tend to associate with an area of weakness. So when we come into contact with those kinds of people that are getting very defensive, Sometimes you can think of it in terms of weakness. So I wonder for you, what behaviors, what personality traits, what preferences do you spend a lot of your time defending to yourself and to other people? What makes you most defensive? What areas do you get kind of touchy with whenever your spouse or a friend like kind of points it out or nitpicks it? I've got all kinds of idols in my life that as soon as uh, Sawyer's like, hey, consider that this might be an idol. I'm like, that's not an idol. And I'm kind of immediately defensive. But I wonder if you're thinking what I'm thinking. I wonder if that's what's going on with Paul here. Is that what he's doing in the pages of Scripture? Is Paul getting defensive? Yes. Is he getting defensive in a way of weakness or of pride or of narcissism? What's happening here? Is it a personal defensiveness, or is it what I mentioned to you earlier? Is it a spiritual self-defense? Well, I think that these sets of verses actually tell us. It says that Paul received his apostleship and the gospel from himself. No, no, no. It says specifically that he received those things from Jesus. Paul is not primarily defending himself, or in as much as he is defending himself, he's defending something else. You see, in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, it says that a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. What I think is happening here is, is that Paul is abiding in Jesus, and Jesus is abiding in him. And when he comes up against this personal affront, hey, your apostleship is from man, your gospel is from man, his defensiveness is not necessarily and inherently about him, but he does seek to defend himself. Why? Because at the end of the day, he's defending his teacher, he's defending the one who abides in him, he's defending Jesus, he's defending the true gospel itself. 1 Peter 3, verse 15 says this, Honor Christ, as, uh, Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. A defense for what? The hope that is in you. So, so you might be like, hey, Chris, show me the math here. How is, Jesus, uh, how is Paul defending himself uh, really about the gospel? Well, it's right there. It's right there in that set of verses from 1 Peter. 
If we're honoring Christ, the Lord, as being holy, we need to always be willing to make a what? A defense. Not some mamby-pamby kind of off-color like remark kind of getting back. Not, not, not acquiescing to the argument. Not, making, not being pacific. Not placating people. Making a defense. That's what we're told to do, is to make a defense. A defense of what? A defense of, of Jesus who's only out there? No, of, of the hope that is in you. You see, there is something symbiotic here. By defending yourself, when you've made yourself so synonymous, so connected in with Jesus and the good news of Jesus crucified on a cross, raised from the grave, and the eternal life that you will have with him forever, when you make yourself so enmeshed with the gospel, when people bring an affront against you and you alone, what can you do? You can, hands off. I don't need to defend myself. But when they make an offense against the gospel, What Peter is telling us is that you ought to be ready to make a defense for the hope that is in you. Christians are supposed to be defensive. That's a surprising statement. Christians are supposed to be defensive, asterisks, okay, when they're defending Jesus, when they are defending the one true gospel, and that's precisely what Paul has on his mind. He is practicing spiritual self-defense. Christians must strive to be so one with Jesus that self-defense is a defense of the faith, a defense of the gospel, a defense of Jesus Christ himself. When are you allowed to be defensive? When what you're really truly defending is your treasured gospel, your treasured savior practice spiritual self-defense. But we practice spiritual self-defense. Even those verses there in 1 Peter say that there is a way that we are supposed to do this. So that doesn't mean that you get to run around like an arrogant person. It doesn't mean that you get to go around like Paul did earlier in this chapter, uh, you know, pronouncing curses on people. It says in 1 Peter that we are supposed to do so with gentleness and respect. And Paul does this in a really specific way. He talks about his public humiliation. In, in practicing spiritual self-defense, he actually tells people about the public humiliation that he endured. And that's where we get the second point this morning, that there is humility through humiliation. And Paul gets real. Verse 13, join me. I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. He, he said that he goes on to really kind of capture like who he was at this time. He was this Jew of Jews. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the law. He had spent all of his time really trying to uh, climb the ladder of Judaism. You go, well, maybe, he was, maybe it was a little bit better than that. No, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond my peers. There's a little bit of pride in there just going like, I was the best Jew. I was doing it really, really good. There's a reason why we're going to talk about this. Because what happens is, is that Paul says, I was advancing. But something had to give when Jesus showed up. Paul's worldview, his personal prestige was actually wrapped up in his identity as a Jew. It was wrapped up, it was synonymous, not with Jesus, but with being a Pharisee. He was up and coming. 
He was an upwardly mobile Jew. And at this time, these people would have not just had prestige and power, they also would have had quite a bit of money. So at this time, being a spiritual leader was something that could have uh, you know, garnered great respect, but also garnered great riches for him. He was up and coming. And what Paul says is that he had to persecute the church. He had no other church, uh, no other choice. His identity was wrapped up and bound up in being a Jew and being a Pharisee of Pharisees, so he couldn't help himself but persecute the church because why, after all, would he be who he was if he let the church just kind of exist? Why, why am I saying that? Because the Jews didn't believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. So when these pesky leaders, these apostles, when uh, Peter and James and John and all of these people started coming around saying, hey, you're not going to be saved by the law. You're not going to be saved by keeping the rules. You're not going to be saved by anything other than by grace, through faith, in Jesus. Paul originally saw, as he was climbing this ladder, in order for his identity not to be in danger, he had to persecute the church. He said that he breathed out violent, murderous threats against the church. And here in Galatians, he said that he persecuted the church of God violently. And he didn't try to leave a remnant. He tried to destroy it. That word is used twice in this set of verses. He tried to destroy it. He had to persecute the church. He had no other choice you have heard of my former life in Judaism. And that's the point. His identity was a public ordeal. People knew who he was. Verse 15, but. Everybody knew who I was. I was growing up. I was going to be rich and famous in this uh, people, in all of the traditions of my fathers. Verse 15, but when he who has set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son Jesus everything changed the old Paul could not remain anymore why because he was set apart Paul had no choice but to persecute the church but then when Jesus shows up he has no other choice because he's set apart he's called he had revealed to him the grace of Jesus Christ I was asked earlier this week by a good friend, hey, does, does, uh, does City Church believe in irresistible grace? Does it believe in, in predestination? Those, those are really great questions. My answer to that was, man, you know, as a part of like our church doctrine, nowhere in our uh, like, you know, uh, covenant or bylaws for our members does it say anything about irresistible grace. My answer back was what we do at City Church is we have a biblical theology. That may sound like a sidestep, but it's not at all. If the Bible says it, we believe it. And here, what Paul says about himself is he had no choice. Don't get wrapped up too much in that. But he said that he was set apart. He was called. It was revealed to him. Let me ask you this. Do you know the story of Paul on the road to Damascus? Have you heard it? Maybe you've heard it, but you haven't considered it. He's on his way to Damascus to do what? To kill Christians. As a part of his religious fervor, he was on his way there to murder people as a part of his religious obligations, as part of his obligations to his very own identity. And Jesus shows up on this road and blinds him. He was set apart. Jesus was revealed to him. He was called. 
What choice did Paul have in this matter? The Son of Man had been revealed to him in person, and everything had to change. The old Paul was humiliated. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come, and that happened to Paul. The old Paul had passed away. The new Paul was here, and it was one who was enlightened and enlivened in his heart to the reality of Jesus Christ. And did he uh, absorb that immediately with, like, uh, total confidence? No, he was humiliated. Everything that he had done up until this point, even his very journey to Damascus, was interrupted by the resurrected Jesus. Paul was humiliated. And what did he do? If you had to base it off of it, we only get like a one sh- like snippet of what happens to Paul next. What does it say? Look at, the, look at the word there. It says that he went away into Arabia. He had spent a lot of his time growing up uh, in the Greek-speaking world. He had ended up in Jerusalem as a part of him uh, sitting at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a Jew among Jews. He would have gone back to Jerusalem, only he couldn't. What was he headed back to there? Total and utter humiliation. What does he do? He goes into Arabia. He spends three years in Damascus. He had a few things to work out. His entire worldview had shifted when he found out that he was persecuted, persecuting the Lord Jesus. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? And in an instant, you have a new Paul. In one way or another, this is what must happen for every believer. It's what did happen with you. Who were you before you came into contact with the resurrected Jesus? Who were you before you had faith that saved you in Jesus? Does anybody other than me cringe at the things that they said or have a heavy heart for the sin that they did? Does anybody uh, feel like the first few years after coming uh, to know Jesus was just really awkward? It was like a spiritual middle school. It was almost like you couldn't look your friends and family in the eyes anymore because you had changed into a totally new person and you couldn't quite explain why that was. Or if you tried to, they couldn't really receive why that would have been. Man, I think about some of the things that I did before truly placing my faith in Jesus Christ and I just, my stomach starts turning in knots. It's humiliating. You changed into a totally new person and people don't even have the like framework to understand why that would be. This isn't just what happened to Paul, it's what always happens. Now you're a different person. You're a new creation. Why? Because the gospel necessitates that you have humility And sometimes that humility comes by way of humiliation. Seeing that old person pass away. There is only one true, there is only one grand story, and it's God's story. There is only one way, one truth, one life. There is only one Savior, and his name is Jesus. And he gives you a new identity in him. 
And any other identity, any other story, any other meaningful pursuit, any other worldview, whether it's Jewish or Hindu, whether it's agnostic or atheist, anything else will disintegrate in the presence of Jesus. Anything that you used to hold on to tightly and put your identity in will literally liquefy in front of the magnificent presence of Jesus Christ who died on a cross for your sins and who rose up from the grave so that you could be a brand new person. That's the story of the gospel. That's why you can't remain unchanged. That is why there has to be, there must be some amount of humility that comes by way of humiliation. Paul spends the rest of his time in this chapter describing his journey from conversion to being a gospel preacher. So we must know that there is some context in which Christians must have a spiritual self-defense, some uh, process by which we receive humility by humiliation, just like Paul. But lastly, what we have to understand, along with Paul, is that during this conversion, there is not just conversion, but there is this road towards being a gospel preacher. And that leads us to our last point this morning, the persecuted preacher, verse 15. Paul was set apart. He was called. He had revealed to him for a very specific purpose. Do you see it? Do you see what the purpose is? That I might preach. He, he was changed for a purpose that he might preach. And for him, not for us, but for him, there's a very specific purpose in his apostleship. And it's for him to be able to preach good news to the Gentiles. That's what his purpose was. This persecuted preacher had this new life, this new identity in Jesus, and it was to go and to preach to Gentiles. So what happens here? What, what do we know is happening here? There's a charge that's brought against Paul. What is the charge? The charge is that Paul is enjoying the renown from his grace-filled, Gentile-getting, man-made gospel. That's the charge. These false teachers have come in, not immediately after Damascus, but after uh, Paul has completed this first kind of uh, missionary circuit. And what's happened is, is that he's planted dozens of churches in dozens of towns. And all of these Gentiles are becoming believers. And so all of these kind of pseudo-Judaistic, Christian-ish teachers are coming along behind him and trying to steal away from the faith these Gentiles who are clinging on to a grace-filled gospel. And all they can say is, you're following the wrong guy. Paul has made up something. He's made up this cheap kind of gospel where all you have to do is have faith to receive eternal life. And that's not true. That's the charge. It's man-made. Paul's rebuttal? If I was after the praise of man, I would have continued advancing in Judaism. That's his, that's, that's his very pragmatic, practical. Why does he go into all of this? Why is he talking about going into Arabia and spending time in Damascus? And why is he talking about like, even when he goes up to Jerusalem to meet with Cephas and James, it says that he was only there for 15 days. And this was years after he had confronted Jesus. Why does he go into that level of detail? It's because he's trying to tell this group of readers, it's not a man-made gospel. If I had wanted to make up something, I wouldn't have been a servant of Christ like we learned about last week. He's saying, he's pleading, I would not have made up something like this. I lost everything for it. 
My entire identity was submitted to and sacrificed at the foot of the cross. Why would I have done that? That's his rebuttal. Why would I have retreated to obscurity in Arabia? Why would I have spent three years in Damascus? Why couldn't I have even shown my face in Jerusalem except for this 15-day stint? Paul is saying, I did not make this up. I did not collaborate with the other apostles. I received the truth. It's not possible that this is man-made. That's what he's pleading with us through this entire first chapter is, don't think that this is man-made. It's from heaven. I received it from Jesus. It's confirming of all of these other apostles and their story because they received it from Jesus as disciples, and I received it from Jesus on the road to Damascus, and they complement one another perfectly. If you're going to try to add rules and regulations and law and Judaism and religion to the one true gospel, you've got it all wrong. It's not man-made. It's from heaven. That's the rebuttal. The gospel is not that we defend ourselves, but that we have one true advocate. It's not that we are saved by our humiliation, but it was that Jesus was humiliated for our humble honor. It's not that we are saved by preaching amidst persecution, but that we have one true Jesus, and he is the the persecuted preacher of salvation. You see that what I'm doing this whole way through is I'm telling you, hey, listen, Christian, you've got to be ready to give a defense. You've got to practice spiritual self-defense, but it's not so that you can trust in yourself. It's because you have a defender. Isaiah 19 says, when they cry to the Lord, he will send them a savior, a defender. Do you know that you have a defender? His name is Jesus. That's how you can be ready to give a defense is because the God of this universe is on your side and he is the defender. It it, it isn't, the gospel is not that you get humiliated and that by some pain of humiliation you earn enough stripes to be accepted by God. It's not that at all. Yes, you are and receive humility in the gospel and that might result in humiliation, but it was Jesus Christ. It was Jesus Christ who was stripped naked on a cross. He's the one that endured public humiliation for you. We see in the gospel that God loves the humble. In 1 Peter it says, Clothe yourselves with humility because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I wonder if you'll receive grace from Jesus Christ. You have to be humble to receive it. You have to know that you can't work for it. I'm not saying that we need to be uh, persecuted preachers ourselves because that's the way that we're going to earn our way into heaven. Do you know this? I don't want for you to take for one second, even just a little bit, that I'm tying somehow together that you have to be persecuted to enter the gates of heaven. I don't want you to think that you have to preach and earn God's favor by giving other people the gospel. I don't think that you have to share your faith in order that you might receive it. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, in fact, quite the opposite. What I'm saying is, is that God's persecuted preacher talks to us. He is the one that initiates with us. In Luke chapter 6, we see that Jesus, the perfect preacher, 
the persecuted preacher, talks to his disciples, and he says, lift up your eyes. And he says, blessed are you who are poor in spirit because yours is the kingdom. Thine is the kingdom. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you when you're humiliated and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets, they also did to Jesus. Go back and read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is the perfectly persecuted preacher, and he has lots of really wonderful things to say to you. He's the perfectly persecuted preacher. That's the gospel. There are a few things for us this morning that flow out of Paul's testimony of the gospel, and they're for us. So I, I, I could finish right there and just, uh, I mean, just behold the gospel alongside of you guys. But I actually want to, like, learn how to apply this here at City Church. There are a few things for us to know. First, Christians need to have a spine. That might sound like a really like simple thing, but what I'm telling you in the midst of saying, hey, listen, be ready to give a defense, be understanding in some way of what spiritual self-defense looks like, I'm telling you, have a backbone, have a spine, be willing and ever ready to give a defense of the hope that you have in Jesus. We do this, we give this defense in the way that we live, but we also do it verbally. I want to encourage you to know that that is something that we can take up. Again, it's not something that you're earning your salvation in, but I would just encourage you that like, you have the God of this universe on your side and that when people uh, speak uh, evil about you, when they revile you for Jesus' name's sake, don't think that there's something weird that's happened. Know that you can stand up tall knowing that the God of this universe loves you. Second, understand that the gospel necessitates humility. Sometimes humility comes through humiliation. So do not be surprised when your ego and your comfort and your reputation and your worldview comes under attack. And don't be surprised when you have to endure obscurity and isolation and sickness. There are a lot of things that happen to us that are humiliating and most of us spend an inordinate amount of time just trying to get away from those things, trying to protect our reputations. If your reputation is in Christ, if when God the Father of this universe looks at you and he sees Christ's likeness in you and he says, like we talked about last week, well done, my good and faithful servant, who cares about humiliation, public or otherwise? Be humble. Be expectant of these things. And finally, Jesus was a persecuted teacher, preacher of the good news, and you are not above your master. Persecution might come. Preaching must come. You say, I, I'm not a preacher. Yeah, you are. You, you may not have this 
not-so-beautiful little box. It may not be yours on Sunday, but man, you've got a voice and you know the good news that changes people's eternal destination. And what I just want to encourage you to do is to know this morning that you have something to say, you have something good. Christians must raise their voice and declare the one true gospel in a world of man-made gospels. People will say you made it up. They'll say that you can't know. They'll say that we can't know that there's a God. They'll say that there is no God. They'll say that Allah is God. They'll say that Mormonism has uh, more things to like than Christianity. They'll say a million things. (laughs) They'll say so many things. But you have the truth, and you're a preacher. We are to be set apart just like Paul. We are to be called by grace. We are to be enlightened by the revelation of God's Son, Jesus. Just tell other people about it. If God has changed your life, say so. Tell people about it. You don't have to have perfectly pretty, you don't have to be trained in apologetics or evangelism. All you have to do is say, Jesus changed my life. You want to know something about him? I'd love to read God's word with you. You can be a preacher. You can be an apostle. Because we are in Jesus, we are freed from our sinful pasts. Paul was freed from his sinful past. And he was freed to do one thing, and that was preach the one true gospel in the present. So I just want to charge you this morning. If you're holding on to something from the past, if you think that uh, God still holds something against you from the past, you need to know, you need to hear that in Jesus, you are completely freed from your past. But it's not just so that you can enjoy it. It's so that you can preach the one true gospel in the present. Let's pray. God and Father, help us to believe on Jesus, the preacher of life who was persecuted in death. Help us to stand ever ready to defend with certainty his resurrection from the dead. Father God, help us to lay every ego, every uh, comfort, indeed our very reputation at the feet of our mighty Savior, Give us life in him and help us to tell others about it. Make us, not not exactly like Paul, he had a very specific mission. He was a capital A apostle. But Father, would you make all people here in City Church, all of our members, apostles, advocates, ambassadors with a heavenly, not a man-made, gospel to share with complete and total confidence. Father, we pray these things in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen.